Hello and welcome to another festive episode of Say by the 90s. My name is Adam Patterson. With me today is the man whose favorite Christmas tradition is the elf on the shelf. That's Ken fake news. Bakley. Ken Bakley. Hey, Ken. Hello. That's fake news. <laughs> I just had to include that because I don't know when the whole elf on the shelf thing started, but I hate it so much. I think I don't know when it started, but I want to know when it ends. <laughs> I think it's a pretty recent thing, right? Like, well, then there's still time to stop it. <laughs> oh man! If you tuned into last year's holiday episode, you'll remember we spoke about made-for-TV Christmas movies, and there were so many of them. We decided to do it again this year, so throw on another Yule log because this is Say by the '90s. Why did Mom give you the silver? I, I was supposed to get the Where silver. Where were you when Mom was sick? Oh, that's right. Excuse you were in me. Florida with that Don't guy. talk to my wife that way. Sorry, Sorry, anyway, I want to. You know, you're not even relevant, I've got to say. I think I want to be a Democrat. Okay, time out. Bangs and claws away. Peace on Earth. Goodwill to each other. Where's the love? You can't stop, Grandma. You can't. What was that? I don't know if you heard him, but he goes, I think, I think I'm a Democrat. Yeah, I thought I was about to say, what was that? And then he said that. And I'm like, I really don't know what this is now. And then it turns out to be an ad for PlayStation. Yeah, it was one of those, those classic 90s tood filled PlayStation commercials. All, all the video game commercials back then. Uh, apparently, uh, <laughs> the, the, the way that Tood was expressed was, was very different than I thought it was. <laughs> I'm sorry. That just that's just haunting me now. Like, so it starts with the our family argument, and then it becomes unintelligible. And then he says he wants to be a Democrat. And then, so okay. So let me let me like paint a visual for you. Okay. Okay. So it is a, yes, it is a family arguing. They <laughs> start off by saying some really awful things, and then they start to all argue. The one guy says he's a Democrat, and a guy dressed up as Crash Bandicoot, like kind of breaks in the door and then you have other playstation characters coming in with him that's when crash says his whole thing and then and then they show grandma playing playstation is that what republicans think that liberals want for america <laughs> i i really don't know <laughs> they want crash they think that liberals want crash bandicoot to come breaking through the <laughs> doors of every republican family household no idea what was going on there. After combing through dozens more holiday TV movies, we scrounged up four more choice titles to discuss this year, the first of which involves a girl whose only Christmas wish is to get a new mom. Airing on NBC on December 17th, 1990, this is A Mom for Christmas. It's a Christmas wish for the mom she never had. That's what I want. You want a mom for the holidays. Now, with a little magic, a miracle is coming to life. Hi. But when the magic spell is over, Midnight. can one little girl's love keep the magic alive? Till Christmas, never forget. Olivia Newton-John's first TV movie, A Mom for Christmas, on NBC Monday. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> so much to talk about with this oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah with every movie we're about to talk about every one of them 
Uh, a mom for Christmas revolves around 11-year-old Jessica, whose mother died when she was three years old. Her father, Jim, is a workaholic with little time for his daughter. Just before the Christmas holiday season, Jessica wins a free wish from a wishing well. Her wish for a mother for Christmas is granted by Philomena. And Amy, a department store mannequin, is brought to life to be a mom for Jessica. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Ken, <laughs> just let's, why don't you kick it off? So What's as we on? begin what is probably going to be the longest episode we've ever done, <laughs> longer than the one where we talked about 10 movies, yeah. so there is at once nothing and everything going on in this movie. Like, I couldn't discern a single plot point, but at the same time, it, like, just the idea that a mannequin comes to life and becomes your new mother is so just, like, quietly bonkers. And it's, the movie... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It's, it's, it's like... It's like Mannequin 2 on the move, <laughs> crossed with Night at the Museum. <laughs> and there's this really weird, like, love story in there, too. A recurring theme we're about to go deep into in discussing this is movies about families written by someone who does not appear to understand human dynamics at all. Yeah, we will get to that big time later on in the show, but every one of these movies involves some sort of broken family that is brought together with a new love. Like mm -hmm. every one of them there it's, there's a lot of common themes in these movies. And, uh, and they're all very poorly done. So this one, like the synopsis, you have this this kid. Apparently, all they do, all these kids do, is hang out in this department store. Now, when I was you a know. kid, when I was you a know. kid, I hated going to the department store with my my parents. Like I mm -hmm. I wanted to get out of there as soon as I went in. Like I couldn't stand going to department stores. I used to not like department stores until I saw Carol, and then I realized that. Any place depicted in Carol carries a substantial emotional significance. There, there's certain, like, when I go to Macy's and stuff, I, there's, there's a certain amount of, uh, I don't know if it's nostalgia or just this kind of, these, these, this, like, classic Americana sort of washes over you, me. When you I, gotta when I go love to... how all out a department store goes at Christmas. Yeah. That's all I can offer. Yeah. Anyway, these kids just love hanging out. They're just in the department store all the time. So this... This kid is hanging out in the department store. She gets made fun of because not because she doesn't have a mom, but just because she's weird, I guess. They they say that she's weird. And they don't like <clears throat> not that we give much credence to what I don't know, uh grade school aged bullies say in movies, but the characters don't make sense. Like the backstory of the character does not make uh any sense. It's never quite understood what the story of these people are except that there is a, a certain emptiness in the family that is felt especially is felt especially in the holidays and can only be can only be addressed by the uh human incarnation of the department store mannequin so she meets this so she gets she does get a wish and in in the wish like or she gets a present and in the in the box it just says you get a free wish and she meets Philomena, who is, um, excuse me, played by Doris Roberts. And 
first of all, she wishes for a new for mom for Christmas, specifically for Christmas. She doesn't wish for a new mom. She just wishes for a mom for Christmas, and g- she gets a necklace from that. Of you course. Go, go ahead. <laughs> Can we talk about how the title "A Mom for Christmas" sounds like a misread line from a speech that Dan Quayle probably gave in 1990? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It, it truly is. I mean, as soon as when we were looking through all the, the hundreds of movies and we saw a mom for Christmas, I was like, well, that has to go on the list because that's, it really does seem simply like must the epitome of a movie that wants to be about some kind of uh, family dynamic, but has absolutely no idea how to write that in a meaningful or emotionally resonant way to the point where it has to outsource its emotion to a character where there's entire there's a there's a sub journey for the character to try and learn what it means to be a human for the very first time, basically. Yeah, but it's it's not done very well because yeah, that's... she like she's trying to be she's a human for the first time. So so yeah, to back up a little to back up a little bit. She ends up going home. The girl goes home, and all of a sudden at midnight, Olivia Newton John shows up at her house, and she it turns out that she's a mannequin and she was brought to life. What we don't know at that time is that apparently all the mannequins just come to life whenever they want. They're, it's 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 not even like a night at the museum thing. They just they can just come alive whenever. It doesn't so have it's more to be like a specific Toy Story, time. Honestly, yeah, it's more like Toy Story. I would say. So she gets a a mom, and like she, right away she knows that it's like that. This is it. Like the wish came true. The, like there was no question about it she just immediately was on board with it and the dad who is a complete buffoon in this like i I don't understand like none of the dialogue is particularly good in this like everything is pretty poorly written but the dad is so bad in this like every line it's not specifically his performance but just all of his dialogue is so utterly atrocious he somehow feels every level he somehow it's a character that somehow feels less comfortable about being a human than the olivia newton john character who has literally not been in a human and human environment and lived among humans ever yeah i also i also forgot that when she gets the wish from philomena she like she kisses her and i I thought that that was really odd like when when would a kid ever just like kiss a strange woman working at a department store like even if they shared a moment i I just i'm not buying that i don't think that would that would happen well once again we return to the fact that a recurring element through this entire episode will be humans written in ways that no human has ever acted before and one thing you begin to realize as the film goes on is that we realize that we find all the different ways that these characters do not know how to be human because the film doesn't really have a perspective that it can grab onto. Like there is an arguably better version of this movie, which is more exclusively from the perspective of the Olivia Newton, John character trying to navigate her way into this family and sort of learning what it means to be like a component of a human relationship and have human emotions during that process. But like that's a journey that's a journey you can grab on you can sort of grasp on a palpable level 
and understand and sort of that's and that perspective is your guidance into this movie the problem here is that it just kind of like while the film kind of just wildly bounces between all three of these characters and never lands anywhere there's no consistency with what she knows what she doesn't know there's some like obvious human things that she just doesn't isn't aware of and then there's some things where it's like I mean, they try to explain it away by saying that she like reads books and that's how she learns how to become a human. But even that doesn't really make much sense. What also doesn't make any sense is the fact that she shows up at midnight. She lets herself in. The dad is no, he has no idea what's going on here. And then she says, oh, I'm here about the the nanny job. And he's just like, uh, okay, you can stay in our our spare room in the garage or something. And then she's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm getting a job at a, the department store. And it's like, why does she need the job at the department store? If this guy just hired her to be a live in nanny, like what's, why does she need two jobs? I understand that like they, that she needed to pay off the, the clothes that she took and stuff from the department store. But, it seems like this whole like second job at the department store was just a reason to get her back into the store to push forward that whole subplot with the, the, the security guard, the mall, the department store security guard, like investigating them, which that, that whole subplot goes nowhere and was completely unnecessary. Like but take sure takes up a whole lot of time. At the oh point, my. Especially. Oh my God. And and like what department store employee would notice or give a crap about this? Like he first starts investigating her when he notices that her boots are the same boots that they sell there. Like, are you kidding? Why, why would he give a flying flip? You know what, what this lady was doing unless he actually saw her stealing. Do they have a is this movie set in a universe where like there's a police state that extends to department stores like there's just you're just under this constant surveillance all the time which is both somehow how uh there's enough cataloged information about human behavior that the Olivia Newton John character can just read a book and learn everything about human behavior except emotional uh, uh emotional uh availability and there are security guards sufficiently overzealous to spend substantial amounts of time trying to crack this non-existent case i think that that's a that's a trope it's one that we'll come back to with a, a movie later on in this episode where you have the the security guard who is like you know didn't didn't make it in the into the police force so he's like this overzealous mall cop basically you know that's such a uh, such a movie trope right there it's ridiculous so of course you have olivia newton john who is learning to be a mom to to the girl but there's also this half-baked love story where you have the dad jim played by doug she Shihan, that is forming i guess like the other movies that we'll discuss this this whole love story thing 
happens very suddenly and moves at lightning speed. It's, yeah, the passage of time in this movie is never clear, to put it mildly. So she only has until the day after Christmas, and and then she has to go away. She has to go back and become a mannequin again, again, I guess. But again, it's it sort of breaks its own rules, because as we see numerous times throughout the movie that these mannequins can just become human whenever they want. So I don't even see what the what, what the big deal is here, because like the driver mannequin, he just pop, you know, whenever it's convenient, just becomes. And, and I love how there's one mannequin that apparently is just positioned at the loading dock to open the door <laughs> at, at certain times. Like, it feels like there's so much information missing here in a movie that already has no sense of pace. And you have the Santa Claus mannequin uh, who is, I'm not sure. I don't why. Why is the Santa Claus mannequin so creepy? He's like some British serial killer. <laughs> they made him <laughs> they made him so disturbing. In fact, all the lighting in this movie, it's lit like a horror movie. It really this whole, is. This whole movie is lit like a horror movie. <laughs> There's there's a scene uh, when they uh, Santa is helping them and he gets hit by a car and <laughs> he gets he gets hit he gets hit Santa gets hit by a car and dismembered and it like explodes and then Olivia Newton John uses her magic to uh, so there it, it this happens to occur in front of a, a house that has this crazy elaborate Christmas scene in the front yard where it's got like all of these elves and other figures just littered. And she turns them all into humans. And then they do this like ritual and (laughs) resurrect the mannequin Santa. It's, it's, it's something else. It really is something else. And then of course there's like, there's some conflict that happens because she doesn't know all the details about being a mom. Like she, she read stuff in her books, but she, she's still a mannequin. So she doesn't really know how to be a mom. So she's like reading her diary and she gets in trouble for that. And then they try to, they try to give the dad a a good Christmas by buying a tree and, and, Rather than lighting it with Christmas tree lights, they put candles all over the tree. And of course, it catches on fire because why wouldn't it? <laughs> and it burns down their living room. There's just. This movie <laughs> has, has such a strange floating relationship with the physical world. Like in one moment, it's about it's about using magic to bring a dismembered mannequin Santa back together. But then in other moments, it's about how, yeah, you put up a Christmas tree near candles and your whole house is going to like catch fire. Oh my God. The, the, the conflicts, the, the multiple conflicts that that just pop up and you feel like they're going to be a big deal because they make it out to be a big deal, but it turns out to be nothing. Like when she read her diary and, and, and she got so mad at her and she, at one point she wished to undo the original wish, but then like two minutes later, she, she tried to, she, she immediately backtracked and was like, no, 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 I didn't, I didn't mean that. So it's like, 
why is all this in here? What what is going on in this movie? Yeah, it's <laughs> when it's not completely astounding, it is just overwhelmingly it's almost dull in how much information dulling in how much information it throws at you. I loved it when when Jim and, and Amy when they finally like decided that they love each other and I think it was Jim who just goes, this is, con- this is confusing. And Olivia Newton, John goes, it's also the simplest thing in the world. What's and the it- simplest thing in the world. <laughs> and also the Amy don't run away from this. Amy, please. <laughs> Everyone's either just sort of there or dialed up to a 30. And then, okay, so at the very end, she goes back to the department store. She does turn back into a mannequin, but then Jessica, or no, sorry. uh, Yeah, Jessica is her name, right? She um, holds, like, holds the mannequin's hand and tells her dad, who shows up to to also hold on to the mannequin. And he grabs, I don't know if you saw, he grabs the mannequin's butt, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, and of course their, their love for Amy brings her back to life, but not, not how you would think the mannequin doesn't turn back into a human. No, Olivia Newton, John like materializes from thin air as a separate person. So there's still the mannequin there, but then also Amy is I guess turned into a human, like a permanent human, but it's like the slowest materializing scene I've ever seen in a movie. Maybe I think it was the slowest materialization ever shot on film. <laughs> and she's wearing some kind of like pirate outfit when she. It looks like like a puffy shirt, like the puffy shirt episode of Seinfeld. There are so many choices here. You just have to sit back after a while and think. That was a choice. You can't understand it. You can't try to understand it. They're just choices. And life is all about choices. And making films is presumably all about choices. Yeah. Choices as running over Santa. Dismembering Santa. Yes. And then holding some kind of weird ritualistic seance to bring him back. Like, this movie takes so much time on some things, and so little time on other things. And you eventually, it's so disorienting, you don't know how much time has passed in the movie. Like, you feel the minutes in different ways. You feel older when it's over, because you've been through so much. So much has happened. There's been fires. There's been materializing. There's been a weirdly obsessive detective subplot. There's been a ritual to bring back Santa. You feel like you've been through it. You feel like you've aged. It's like the Irishman. <laughs> and then you have that amazing Olivia Newton-John soundtrack. Oh, of course, yes. To go with it. That as well. <laughs> because, man, none of it fits. None of it feels like it should be there at all. Such a song that was clearly written in like 10 minutes just to make sure that there was a, sure that there was an Olivia Newton-John song to go with this movie. It is. And again, if we think back to Greece, Hopelessly Devoted to You was also a contractually obligated song that the songwriters did not want to write and wrote very hastily. And that turned out pretty well. So yeah. what's the deal with this? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on in this 
movie. It's very, very strange to say the least. I, I will say that uh, all of the movies that we're discussing on this episode are horrible. Mm-hmm. Like they're all really amazingly horrible. And I recommend almost all of them. They're, they're all bizarre in their own in their own special way and See, this, I, I i had a blast going through all of them but this is the real value of talking about tv movies is that they're allowed to be as insane as they want essentially and that's why we need more uh network space given to tv movies because we don't really have any anymore and look what we're missing yeah we're missing a mom for christmas are you kidding me this was on nbc yeah. yeah. Imagine just turning on NBC and seeing Santa get run over. It is uh it is something else. Oddly, it's not the most bizarre title no. that we'll be discussing. Not really, no. Next up, we have a classic story of a wealthy business owner having one of his underlings pretend to be his family in order to close a big deal. But guess what? They actually fall in love. Airing on CBS on November 30th, 1997, and becoming one of its highest viewed TV movies, this is Borrowed Hearts. Good morning. Hey. So how'd the house hunting go? Check it out. Zoe doesn't know yet. Don't want to get her hopes up. Over this? Who's your realtor, cat, Herman Monster? (laughs) Well, at least it's a better neighborhood, and it'll be a better school for Zoe. You know, you might approve the picture. You put a man in there. Yeah. That's all I need right now. You know, if it has tires or testosterone, it's trouble. Hey, you got that right. What the credit union say about a down payment? About 10,000. What? I guess I'll just have to moonlight for a while. Single mom Kathleen Russell and her daughter Zoe pretend to be Kathleen's boss's family so we can close a major business deal with the mysterious Mexican financier, Javier Del Campo. Adam, let's start off with your thoughts on uh, this other bizarre and at times upsetting movie. (laughs) Oh, boy. So this one stars uh, Roma Downey and Eric McCormick. Eric McCormick is the, the business owner. And when he's introduced, the... The other coworker, who I think, uh, who we heard in that clip, she goes, the man goes through more women than a manicure. And that happens, that line happens at the, probably the first scene of the movie. And I'm sitting there like, what does that even mean? The man goes through more women than a manicure? It, like, I understand maybe what she was going for there, but it didn't, it's not worded correctly at all. So I feel like that was a great setup for what this movie is is gonna offer us there's a lot of mixed signals coming from this movie and then you have what was it i think it was his um i think it was his business partner who uh played by sean thompson who uh in maybe like one or two scenes later says that women are a bucket of dirty water <laughs> and I'm just wild like, like what what? That was wild. <laughs> Women are a bucket of dirty water. Oh my Ooh, god! So wild. Uh, again, this is—it's uh, pretty atrocious. You—you you heard the setup. You have Roma Downey is a single mom. She is looking to buy a, a house for her and her daughter. 
and as it happens for some reason so they're they're driving and she ends up at her, uh, her boss's house and her bratty daughter just goes into the house just goes into this guy's house because it looked like her dollhouse yeah because it looked like the the dollhouse that she had so she just enters this man's house and as it happens they were trying to find a family that they could rent uh because this businessman i want to i want to track the pop like there's a that like you sometimes you could do pretty uh cohesive political readings of movies this movie touches upon every possible ideology so first off obviously the dog just going into the house there's no private property that's clearly that but there's no private property this movie first feels very anti-private property i'm like wow that's kind of a radical idea and then it becomes about how they need to impress this quirky mexican businessman and then pretend to be a family because that's some sort of structure he values highly so i'm not exactly sure what that is but in terms of weird uh, stereotyping and emphasis on family values, then it becomes very conservative. And, that, and we're just in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. So she so the daughter goes into the house and they they show that she's like wearing her boots that have snow all over them. And it features the maybe the fakest snow I've ever seen in my entire life when they pan down to her boots. It is utterly ridiculous. And then they agree to be this guy's family. And I mean, of course, you know, it's all telegraphed from the very beginning. Of course, you know that they're going to fall in love and be a real family at some point. So they they learn their like lines and they learn all about each other and they get their story straight. And the guy's only supposed to be there for two nights, but they have this like montage where they're there for what seems like weeks. It just seems like weeks that they're there. <laughs> And it then feels on top, like the whole year. And then on top of that, the guy, well, first of all, the guy is staying at his house, which I thought was also kind of weird that, mm. you know, you, these are like really wealthy businessmen. I, I doubt that the, that the guy would be like, I'm going to stay at your place. Right. You know, I just, I don't think that that would be how that works. This company has no travel expenses at all. <laughs> so uh, the other thing I thought was odd was there's, there's like this montage where they're like getting the house festive because he's like, since it's like a bachelor pad, it doesn't have any kind of Christmas decorations. They're all like setting it up for Christmas. And, they, and there's a scene where they're like hanging apples from the Christmas tree. Is that a thing? Do people hang apples from a Christmas tree? Apparently, there was a time in history where people put live candles on their Christmas tree, so I don't know anything anymore. <laughs> I just I thought that that was very strange that they were like grabbing apples and people putting them on like, the Christmas tree. Strangle their Christmas trees with strings of popcorn. I don't know why people put things on their Christmas trees. Yeah, I mean the popcorn thing I get, but I don't <laughs> like full on apples. Like I, I don't know. It just seemed... <laughs> and next we will be stuffing roast turkeys inside of our Christmas tree. <laughs> I mean, I mean the popcorn. Like you can string the popcorn and have that last. Why not know, just through have Christmas? Why not just eat popcorn? <laughs> you put apples on there; they're going to be rotten after a couple days, right? I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. That's no, so. None of it makes sense. So, it, it, so he's there for like the two days. AKA like five months. And then he says he's going to extend his visit another two weeks. So of course they're like, Oh, hope we, we got to keep, keep doing this. And 
I, she, so first she agreed to do it for two nights and it was three grand. Was it? It was like three or five grand. Mm-hmm. And then she agreed to do the full two weeks for 10 grand. And of course you don't hear anything about the dad, but he mysteriously comes back into the picture just to, just to throw a wrench in this whole, <laughs> this whole scheme that they got going on. And apparently the dad is like this grifter who's always talking about getting back on the tour. I, I'd like to count the number of times he says, Oh, I gotta get back on the tour. <laughs> Which I guess was a golf tour. I don't. Did they even ever say what it was? <laughs> so they they just kept saying the tour, but they weren't explaining what what he was referring to. He got kicked out of a golf club, so I'm assuming that it was I, like a golf tour. Apparently, no, 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 no. He was uh, uh that was that was a uh, short end. He was that he's actually a, a that was actually Toriador. He's uh he's a renowned bullfighter. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. Okay, that makes more sense than most of this movie. Um, they try to set up these like comedic set pieces involving the 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 guy, uh, Senor Del Campo, and them trying to like sneak around and pretend to be a family and stuff. So like the very first night, he's just in the guy's study reading, and they're trying to decide like she has her own room. But they have to pretend like they're a couple, obviously, so that she has to go into like his room. And it turns into this huge thing, this like big blowout thing where like she doesn't think that it's proper. Like he says that he's he can sleep on the couch and she can take the bed, but that's not that's not acceptable. So he has to sleep in the on the floor in the closet (laughs) like the daughter would even know or care. It's not like they're in, sleeping in the same bed, but it causes this huge amount of turmoil and they start arguing and stuff. All of it just felt so dumb. <laughs> it was just so dumb and lame. <laughs> the The daughter thinks that Del Campo is an angel. And I thought for sure, I thought 100% this movie is going to have him. It's going to reveal him to be an angel at the end of this. And, and th- th- they don't explicitly do it that. Doesn't but, but... really. The movie doesn't. The movie's not sure whether or not it wants to make him an angel. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it because the the very final shot is like him. He's leaving, and then he stops the car, gets out. Somehow he knows that like the girl's looking at him from the window, and then he like tips his hat to her, and then gets back in the car and leaves, and that's the end of the movie. I think that they were trying to say, like, yeah, he probably is an angel, but <laughs> but they didn't have the budget to give do any effects or anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, movie, the movie just felt very indecisive on whether or not he's an angel. And if he is, that opens up another reading of this movie, whereby a whole lot was right. Well, why a whole lot was simply riding on uh, the actions of other people towards this angel, people who do not know he's an angel. So purposely so he can guide and help improve the life of this child who basically can't make any major decisions in this movie at all. So if right. he is an angel, he that's he has a very convoluted uh workflow. I think that this movie is like like all four of the movies, really. Everything has to happen in a very specific way in order to for this story to work. 
Mm-hmm. And there's just there in all of these movies, there's just so many coincidences and things that ha- that progress in a in such a perfect way that everything fits together. And a lot of it feels like really forced, like, oh, all of a sudden the dad comes into the picture again. Like, what are the odds that the dad suddenly shows up and then he extorts Eric McCormick for money and then all of a sudden he does like a complete 180 and he goes from being a complete a-hole to this guy who says that, that, that they should be together at the end where he's, he's like a hundred percent supportive. And then he has to, so he says he's got to leave that night. So he, he comes, I guess, Chris, I can't, I think it's Christmas Eve. He comes there and he says uh, that, that he has to go back on the tour or whatever he's doing uh, that night. And then right after he says that he has to leave that night, he leaves immediately. <laughs> so he doesn't even spend the day with him or anything. He just he's like, I gotta leave tonight. So I should probably go now. <laughs> and and of course that was like a big that that caused one of the big uh moments of conflict in this where the kid then climbs a tree because she's upset. Mm-hmm. And the other the other big thing is the the whole buyout. So mm-hmm. Eric McCormick is that this deal that he's trying to close is basically selling the company to Javier. And it would mean that a whole bunch of people lose their jobs because they'd be moving the workforce to, to Mexico. And, and uh, Roma Downey's character is, is one of those people who would lose her job. And so there's, when she finds out she has this like big feast for all of the workers and stuff, which I don't know how that all, how she was able to make that work. But, and then of course, as you might expect, he decides to cancel the deal at the end because over the course of maybe two weeks at, at most, he completely changes his entire personality. Mm -hmm. Like most of the people in these movies that we're going to discuss. So complete 180. So, so then we have a narrative about how they have to avoid having this com- uh, having this company outsource their jobs to Mexico. And then in the last scene, the millionaire who has become good now, literally when the girl climbs up on the tree, falls off the branch, she has to catch her. So she's literally saved by a millionaire. I think this movie is very Republican in a way. <laughs> the millionaires are going to save us. <laughs> and they're going to do the right thing in the end. Uh-huh. Gonna... Everything about this is completely boring bland milk toast <laughs> like everything about this movie is just everything is completely telegraphed from the the moment that it starts you know exactly how everything is going to play out and and at the same time it's impossible to track from moment to moment like i i try i kid of course about trying to give this movie a political reading because it's simply not cohesive enough to have a political reading even even if it actually wanted to have one it's just a boring collection it's, of holiday tropes. That's, and that's all it is. That in tandem really don't form a story because they're very hard to follow because you don't even have a sense of time passing. Like there's a whole lot given to like the amount of time that has that that there's left until the next event happens, but you never have a feeling. You just have to wait for someone to tell you, "Oh, guess it's time to do this thing now." It's all pretty bad, but you take one look at that cover and you you know you know exactly what's going to happen in this movie. Mm-hmm. Except except for some reason that uh, uh, Hector Elizondo looks <laughs> completely ridiculous. He doesn't. What he's Everybody wearing? Please look at the look up the the DVD cover. It's on the IMDb for this movie. 
what he's wearing in this, I don't think he wears a single time in the movie. He's wearing a, a suit throughout the like, whole movie. It's photoshopped into the corner, which makes me think that that was just like a... I think you said like they literally just <laughs> pasted in his headshot. Yeah, it was it was from like the photo shoot while he's getting new headshots, and he just took one of those photos mm-hmm. and copied it in. That, that's, that's exactly what it looks you have like. To put it on the promotional material for borrowed hearts. This is not a good movie, but it's not one of the fun, not good movies. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just so nothing. It's just it's so it, it didn't even make me laugh at how like how bad it was i mean some of the some of the scenes i mean there were a lot of like kind of wtf moments where i'm just like what is going on in this movie but it wasn't anything that that has any kind of lasting power like this this is a movie that i saw yesterday and it's already fading rapidly from my mind I played that because I think almost everyone knows what commercial oh, yeah. that is, even mm-hmm. though there's there's no <laughs> even though you can't see it. Yeah, you can't see it, but you know what it is. That and that commercial still plays to this oh, day. Yeah. Oh yeah. Our third feature this month stars Mark Ruffalo as a department store security guard who is tasked with watching over a mother-daughter pickpocket duo until after Christmas. But guess what? Mark Ruffalo and the mother fall in love, and it's all very lovely and Christmassy. And anyway, airing on Lifetime on December 7, this is on the second day of Christmas. A Lifetime original movie. She's just trying to make a living. Female suspect, red coat and handbag. To him, it's strictly business. Patent passing, huh? That's, that's cute. Will your Christmas be naughty or nice? Christmas is supposed to be a time of compassion. Don't you feel the least bit sorry for us? Mary Stewart Masterson, Mark Ruffalo. Don't let this one get away. A gift wrap romance, only from Lifetime. Well, everybody deserves a second chance. On the second day of Christmas. Premieres next month on Lifetime Television for Women. Trish and her six-year-old niece, Patsy, make their living picking pockets, but when they try to take advantage of holiday shoppers with fat wallets, they run into a little snag. A department store security guard named Bert catches them in the act. The store owner wants them arrested, but decides to wait until Christmas is over. (laughs) What? Uh, To ensure they don't make a run for it, he entrusts their care to Bert. With jail on the horizon, Trish and Patsy are scared for their future. But as the holiday nears its end, it looks as though a budding romance might just save them after all. Wow, this movie. What an insane logline. This movie is top to bottom, completely out of control. <laughs> uh, before, before I get your initial thoughts, Ken, I want to first discuss the poster for this movie. Oh, if you look on IMDb and look at the poster for On the Second Day of Christmas, it features a Santa Claus who is shushing. He's got his like little finger up and he's shushing. <laughs> Next to the Santa Claus is a <laughs> is a puppy wearing a Santa hat. Mark Ruffalo and Mary Stewart Masterson are nowhere to be found. Uh, they are the pu- not present here. <laughs> the The puppy featured on the cover, uh, to my knowledge, does not exist. No, it's not this, in the movie at all. In this movie, there's like 
what appears to be a young child in pajamas looking at a fully lit Christmas tree in the background. Which is, who is clearly that? a stock photo. Yeah. Who is that child? What is going on there? The Santa that is featured uh, is not a Santa that is in the movie either. What's going on here? Bonus. Ten holiday <laughs> songs. <laughs> so what does that mean? Does it include... <laughs> Does it also include a CD or is it like a DVD ROM thing that you have to listen to the, the songs on your computer or DVD listen, player? You're buying a DVD of on the second day of Christmas. You want something. Uh, uh, what is going on here? I mean, this this cover, I think, completely sums up what's what this movie is, which is bananas. Uh, who knows? Like, who knows what's happening here? This is completely out of control. <laughs> That's the worst DVD cover I've ever seen. <laughs> it literally has nothing to do. I mean, you wouldn't even know that this is the same movie, except that it has the the two stars listed at the top. And so you assume that that's the same thing. And, and at the bottom, you see Santa flying over New York City. What appears to be New York City, I guess. And I would what, assume why, that's where it's set. Why is why I is assume- <laughs> Yeah, New York City. We'll get into that. But why why is Santa? I mean, it makes you think that Santa is somehow involved in this movie. And then you have the Christmas lights, the tagline. Anyone can have a change of heart when it comes to Christmas. What does that mean? Come on. That's something that vaguely that vaguely corresponds to something that happens that's vaguely about what the movie is. Like people can change. Uh, but it's not really structured around Christmas. The whole point is that people can change in a more permanent way. Of course. Well, certain characters can. Uh, so, okay. Other people are just miserable in this. Yeah. What, is, what were your initial thoughts on, on the second day of Christmas? One, that is, it's such an insane idea. Like, we can't arrest these people until after Christmas, so we're going to send this single mother and her child to live with this random <laughs> security guard yes the whole basis so of this upsetting. movie the whole basis of this movie is completely bonkers and makes no sense it shouldn't exist whoever no. thought that this is a movie that should exist should have been i don't know this has can, the same understanding of the world as like a particularly badly written like wattpad story or something like that's how this works right i mean just 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 to hammer this down just to reiterate this you have mark ruffalo as a security guard you have mary stewart masterson and her niece as these pickpockets who get caught at a department store in new york and they send her and her niece her young niece home with the security guard that is so upsetting are you kidding me that is not okay. In custody, like handcuffed. And the, like, what? Wh- I, I, I'm at a loss for words with this movie. Complete loss for words. <sighs> so, <laughs> uh, apparently, <laughs> apparently this takes place in New York. They make it very, they make it very clear that it's New York. This was not shot in New York. This was shot in Toronto. As Nothing. most movie, TV movies that make a point yeah. to say they're set in New York are. Nothing about this looks like New York in any no, it, way. It is the it, it does not even make a vague effort to look like New York. It's the least New York New York movie I've ever seen. Maybe like you you have like they they do things that sort of 
try to make you immediately believe that it's new new york like you have this guy out in front of the department store who's like yelling for a taxi but i mean anybody who's been to new york knows that that's not even a thing that happens where you just have like a businessman standing on the street like yelling like taxi taxi like that doesn't that's not something that that happens second you have a situation where so mary stewart masterson as trish and her her uh, niece patsy played by lauren pratt they they scam some people outside to to get some money or whatever and you have these cops who stop them and they they're like separated so the cops think that the girl patsy is on her own and they're like oh go home sorry no cop would ever just tell a kid in the middle of manhattan to just just go home by herself this kid is like eight years old that would not happen sorry you wouldn't just leave a child alone on a on a crowded street in new york like that oh Uh, my god apparently 1990s apparently giuliani's new york was just different you you have the setup there and of course like they don't want to go with him he doesn't particularly want them to to he doesn't want to do this either but the boss was telling him that he's got to do it for some reason again completely baffling as to why this is happening and after this you start to see these title cards show up every few minutes with absolutely like, ridiculous titles that like three word like it's like a like the titles in a, like a Godard movie or something these are these happen very frequently uh, but they're inconsistent too. Like they happen at really inconsistent times. So sometimes it'll happen like two minutes after the other one, like very quickly. And it's basically uh, like something you would, it's basically like an over like a screen, like a painting. It feels like a scene change or something. Yeah. I thought at first, maybe that was in between commercial breaks, but then it happens like eight times or something. And it seems like it happens way too frequently to be during commercial break. I think for a two-hour program, there would probably be somewhere around eight commercial breaks, so that might be it. It's just that the commercials were placed in really weird places. The, 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 one, the one that I took a screenshot of when I sent it to you was one of, like, carolers, and it's, the title is Worst Things Could Happen. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're wondering if they have anything to do with the segment that's preceding or following it, the answer is no. They have nothing to do with it. A lot of the titles are taken from lines of dialogue like uh we were robbed by santa or whatever when that happens which doesn't mean they have anything to do with the yeah movie so of course so they go back to well first they have to go to their apartment to get some clothes and stuff like that and then they end up going back to mark ruffalo's place and they go to a, a supermarket, which again, I don't think that would exist in Manhattan. And then they they fall in love. And well, yeah. So then you have this other. There's this other subplot going on with Mel, who I guess is Trish's ex boyfriend. He's a kind of a a thief and a scam artist as well, and he ends up robbing them, and uh, it robs Trish's apartment. Uh, burgles her apartment takes all her stuff and he's dressed as santa for some reason and then 
<laughs> He's the guy in the DVD cover. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then at one point, he takes the child. Like, he grabs Patsy and puts her in a van. I don't know what his game was there. Like, what his plan was. Why would he take the child? Be that becomes um who knows who knows why so then on christmas day they're starting to get along now the two of them they're starting to they're starting to hit it off there's a spark there there's a noticeable spark well yeah but because of the circumstances it more just feels like stockholm syndrome than anything else (laughs) yeah uh uh, so this is a movie about an abduction yeah it is it really is they're starting to fall for each other and and Bert is like, oh, I got to go visit my family in uh, Maplewood, which is uh, in New Jersey. And they so they go to Maplewood and meet with his family and they they love his family and blah, blah, blah. And then turns out there's this place called Santa's Castle in Maplewood, which I looked it up. It doesn't actually exist. I can't imagine that a movie that tried to pass off the least New York parts of Toronto as the the heart of Manhattan would also invent a place in Maplewood, New Jersey. Yeah, Maplewood, New Jersey does exist, but Santa's Castle does not exist. There is a, there is something called Santa's Castle, but it's not what is represented in that movie and it doesn't t- and it doesn't it's not located in New Jersey. I think we don't I don't think we need to belabor the point there. Whatever, that's fine. <laughs> also, pause. I'm on the Wikipedia page for Maplewood, New Jersey, you know, as all the cool kids are. The 2010 census reflect a very stable population change of a decline of one person. <laughs> 23,868 in 2000, 23,867 in 2010. Now, I know obviously that's different people. Like it was just a change in population that resulted in the difference being about a net loss of one. I like to think it's just one person that one just person got fed up with Maplewood. <laughs> <laughs> like everyone else stayed. One person just got fed up with Maplewood. like, I'm out of here. This not big enough for the whole 23,868 of us. I'm out of here. <laughs> oh boy well i mean like so when they when they go to one thing that bothered me when they go to santa's castle first of all it's like super late like i don't know why they would wait until it was like very late at night to go there to begin with but at any rate they decided to go one thing that really bothered me about that that scene was they show them getting in the car and Trish gets in the car on the driver's side and like like why would you get in the car on the driver's side if you're not driving it was oh I think it was only done just because they had to get that get her like getting into the car and they couldn't reframe it so they were just like just just get on the driver's side it's fine that one that one scene was actually uh shot in Britain so I maybe that's the thing that they drive on the other side of the road there so uh, perhaps i mean he gets in too so she had to scooch so mm-hmm. at any rate they go they go to santa's castle it's closed of course but then you have this i guess he's a, like a care a groundskeeper or a security guard he's somebody some kind of maybe maybe a man he looks more like a maintenance person more than anything and he he shows up and says that they're closed but then he lets them in anyway because this is a family movie, and of course, that is what happens. And even though the place is closed, it, it's all like completely lit up and decorated, like 
as if they're still open. Like there's hot cocoa on the still on the table and like cookies and stuff. And Patsy writes a letter to Santa because she wanted a bike for Christmas and the bike was stolen, of course, when her house got robbed. And uh, the maybe perhaps the strangest thing in this movie is that the guy who the guy who's like the, the security guard shows up the next day when they have to go back to the the department store and get arrested. He shows up as their lawyer and has like filled out forms and things that end up, that end up getting them off the hook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess that's where this uh where the Christmas magic comes into play here. Now, by this point, Mark Ruffalo and Mary Stewart Masterson say they love each other. So Trish and Bert, they're in love. They they profess their love for one another on an, on the escalator in the department store. And uh, I mean, where enough, else would you do that? Uh, funnily enough, the uh, the mom, Mark Ruffalo's mom, is also there for some reason. She's I guess doing some day after Christmas shopping or something. And well, that's almost, when you return stuff. Almost gets pickpocketed by Patsy because, of course, Mel kidnaps her and tries to force her into uh, p- pickpocketing people. There's so much kidnapping in this movie. Yeah. And then also, by the way, there's an entire scene right before this. There was an entire scene of Mark Ruffalo jamming out with a guy playing the clarinet on a bus. And it, there was like no reason for it to exist. He's just scatting it up with a guy playing a clarinet on the bus. Just a lot of New York disappearances. And uh, this was this the original pilot for Without a Trace. <laughs> uh, I had to check to see if I was correctly remembering it, that Without a Trace is set in New York. So I had to look that up. The the research that I do for my jokes on the show. <laughs> so I remember without a trace, but I I sort of remember it. That was a so, show, yeah, done for a long time. So you got the the security guard. His name is David Elfman, by the way. He comes in wow. and he he gets them off the hook, and then they decide to. They also happen to apprehend Mel at the same time, and oh, guess what? Mark Ruffalo's brother is there too because he's a cop and he happens to be working at the department store as well. And then you have the mom steal the the like manager's wallet and plant it in Mel's Santa suit so he gets arrested and the the pickpocketing is I guess pinned on him. So they get off the hook and then after this, uh, he proposes, to, Bert proposes to Trish, <laughs> and she says yes, and then we jump forward to New Year's. Happy New Year, everybody. And you have this really brutal, absolutely brutal song with Mark Ruffalo singing and playing piano, because he made a song about Trish, and he's singing a song about Trish, and it's just... Oh my god. This one this one might be the most insane out you of think, all. Yeah, of them. it honestly is because you think it's going to be the one about the <laughs> the mannequin coming to life, 
but it's really not. This one just has the highest propensity of just completely bananas and misunderstandings of just human behavior. It is, it's wild. I mean, it's just like one thing after another, and it's just so utterly ridiculous. Uh, you can watch this on YouTube, by the way. And, and you should. You should, but it, it is two hours long, so. It's a According to IMDb, it's two hours long. It's an it's that's with commercials. It's like an hour thirty. Is it okay? You can knock it out in ninety minutes. That felt like, really worth it. It felt like it, I was, this, this was like ten ten weeks long. This this movie, it's it's very rough. Now I will say that, like Mary Stewart Masterson and Mark Ruffalo, they do they do a pretty good job in this. But the the thing is, like the material they're working with is just so over the top that. Uh, you you can't take anything in this seriously at all. I mean, especially like when he proposes to her when they say they 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 love each other. You have to remember this is the they they've spent like maybe one collective day together, and they're saying they love each other and they want to get married. Like this isn't this isn't gonna work. So yeah, this really does feel like a movie written by like a kid or something. Like, no understanding of what would happen of that the remedy to the initial problem presented in the premise of the film is not you're going to go live with this random security card and that this is absolutely not how humans fall in love with each other. It's it's so insane. Oh, my God, this movie. I, yeah, I just couldn't get over how this clearly how this really kind of feels like a if not kidnappings this definitely feels like a very upsetting understanding of like people being under the control of other people she also convinces him to break into a christmas tree place and steal a christmas tree this is basically a movie which, about a crime wave which completely goes against like all of his principles like he's he's this really by the book guy following the law like a family and, that's all police officers that, that yeah. give him a hard time because he has like uh, he had like a problem. He has like in this. Uh, well, why why couldn't he be a, a, a cop? There was some reason I can't remember now. He couldn't. Uh, I think he couldn't pass the marksmanship test or uh, something. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, this is the guy who's very by the book, who very disappointed, you know, and it feels like he let his family down by not also being a cop like them, so he's going to be like the best department store security guard he can be, and then that just all goes out the window immediately. A lot of the I'm noticing a lot of the the guys, a lot of the male characters in these movies have been complete doofuses. Like, pretty much all all the movies that we talk about have male characters that are, that are either douchebags or doofuses. I was just reminded I know this is a completely off topic and going back to another movie that we talked about, but in the um, a mom for Christmas after their living room burns down, there's a scene where the dad is just like, he's like curled up on the burnt floor in the living room, practically in the fetal position. And Olivia Newton, John walks I mean, in and goes, same. Olivia, she, she walks in and goes, are you sure you don't want some gazpacho? And he just goes, no, <laughs> I, I, just, that. I just remember the, the gazpacho scene. <laughs> like that really felt like that's like a room or troll two quality line reading there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like 
he's he's in this completely burned out living room. Everything, like all of his like prized sentimental possessions, like photos of his dead wife, they're all gone. He's he's like like rocking back and forth, you know, just completely broken a shell of a man. And she comes in. Are you sure you don't want some gazpacho? Oh my god. <laughs> it's incredible. All right. Our final film this month concerns a grumpy book editor who wants nothing to do with the holiday spirit, but becomes haunted by the manifestation of her inner child. And guess what? She also falls in love. These movies are so regressive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Airing on December 6th, 1999, again on Lifetime, this is If You Believe. <sighs> I'm not Alice. Don't play games. Where's your father? Bob! Bob, are you here? What are you doing here? I'm not going through another Christmas without celebrating. What are you talking about, Alice? I told you. I'm not Alice. Hold on. When are you going to pull this place together? It's been over a year since you divorced Peter and moved in. I can't believe you left you here. Is your father home? Aunt Susan, who's this? Alice. Bah humbug. Susan Stone is definitely what you'd call a modern-day Scrooge. She's a young... Well, then she's not a Scrooge if she's young. The whole thing about Scrooge <laughs> is that he's old and that he yeah. makes regret. Who wrote this logline? Jaded book editor who is consumed with self-doubt. I mean, aren't we all? And has lost the passion and drive that defined her childhood persona. On the verge of losing her job and being completely on the outs with her family, uh, Susan has nearly given up on happiness. I mean, 2019 mood there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Out of nowhere, a cheerful, carefree seven-year-old girl named Susie awaits Susan back at her apartment. It turns out that little Susie is the embodiment of Susan's inner child. She's Susie, Susan, as she once was years ago. Susie has come to help the adult Susan rediscover and recapture the love of life that she's lost. It just occurred to me in a few weeks, my <laughs> overused go-to joke, a 2019 mood. I'm going to have to update the year on that one. You are. 2020 mood. Anyway, is that just the whole, is that the, the log line they use? That's so long. <laughs> yeah, I just copied and pasted that. I know. I, I, I assumed so. Man, wow. That's a lot of words about a movie that's not really about anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we pretty much, that logline just pretty much, that's the whole movie right there. Yeah, that, that's that, it. That's that's, that's it. She's having a difficult time, ruined all of her relationships with her uh, family uh, because she's not happy. And so somehow a version of her childhood self that's somehow been beamed over from some sort of... Uh, parallel but not entirely parallel timeline has uh appeared in here to tell her how to i don't know have fun again really loses the thread kind of quickly adam what did you think of this it's horrible yeah one thing that i'll say about this one i think it might be the worst like worst edited of, of all of them <laughs> Oh, yeah. I don't know I don't know if you noticed but there are multiple multiple times when uh lines of dialogue are 80 yard in but the the camera is still focused on the person so <laughs> they're they're literally sitting there their uh -huh. mouth their mouth isn't moving and yet they're talking 
<laughs> like it's not from behind them it's straight on and they're saying things and yet their mouth is very plainly in focus and they are and it's not moving i don't know how they even like how did no one see that and I, that is that is completely baffling it, and it happens multiple times. It's not just one. There, there were at least two cases that I saw where there was egregious uh, errors in editing in this. It, well, <laughs> there's a lot of egregious errors in this movie. Sure. So you have Ali Walker starring as Susan Stone. And then who is uh, about as good as anyone could be with this material. Oh, I love how the beginning of the movie, she's 20. And I'm just, I just immediately go, no, that's not going to work. There's, I like how there's just one point where they have basically the same child actress playing her at way different ages. And then they just throw her in at 20, even though she was, you know, she's playing a 37 year old character. She was about 37 when they made this. And they just yeah. switch, they just maybe have like two actors to play uh, the character. I thought that they were going to leave her. Whole, yeah. I thought they were going to leave her at 20. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like what? That's not going to work. Because there's this whole mon montage at the start where it's about how Allie has gone from this uh, ha uh, happy child to someone who's being completely like bogged down by her unpleasant family and the world and the world around her to the point where she's become this sort of a cynical person that she becomes at the start of the story uh proper there's so many rotations of that like i didn't know how many there were because every time it's just like the cutback there's another christmas or another holiday or whatever uh i don't know is it sometimes is it thanksgiving it's like a mixture of Christmases and Thanksgivings and she's a different age. And I, for a while I thought that was going to be most of the movie <laughs> would be just like different information transmitted through different holidays. And I thought that would actually be kind of an, a daring approach for this movie. Yeah. Well, uh, no. they def they definitely didn't do that. Basically this is a Christmas Carol ripoff. Sort of. It's in like, of, in a lot like of a ways, Christmas Carol from, rip off from someone who didn't really read it <laughs> they watched 10 minutes of mickey's christmas carol and, and they're like i think i know what this blanks. is about uh, they, they got the part where there's an there's a bitter person who's visited by spirits yeah so you have uh, hayden penitary as the as Susie, and she actually she also plays her niece alice and that's why in the clip she thinks that it's her niece alice who is who's visiting her and uh yeah so Sh susan is uh this bitter book editor she it's funny because she's a workaholic right but she doesn't do she doesn't actually do any work so a large part of the movie is like her going into the office and i love the scene when she calls her assistant to come in on like i don't i can't remember if it was thanksgiving or christmas and that I think it was like the day after Thanksgiving or yeah. something, but like that yeah. morning. She calls her to come into work and she's just playing solitaire. That's <laughs> <laughs> so like, man, she, she's like, there's so much important she, work to do right now. She's just like straight up evil, this woman. And uh, it's never really clear. It's never really defined why she's so 
mean and bitter. Uh, they they talk about the fact that she that that when her father died, it was hard on her. But I still feel like it wasn't quite justified that she was such a terrible person. And I also get like, yeah, her her job is maybe stressing her out. But also, it seems like she is a workaholic who doesn't do any work. So I feel like she's probably bringing a lot of that onto herself. Yeah, like the movie does not understand how to what in what way she is stressed out about her job because in some scenes it's about how she's always working and working and working and other scenes it's about how apparently she's about to get fired because she uh she's falling behind all of her colleagues so what happens what happens that that brings Susie about is that she gets bonked on the head she's she's leaving work and she's i guess she's i guess it's ice or maybe she just falls i mean sometimes i just fall (laughs) I mean, my, yeah, my wife just randomly falls a lot. Um, yeah, she just falls and, and bonks her head, and uh, that's when Susie shows up. So I think it has something to do with that, although I was expecting there to be um, more of, like, a Christmas Carol thing where at the end it, like, reverts back to that, but that's not really... Well, as we've established, this was written by someone who only watched the first 10 minutes of... A yeah. Christmas Carol adaptation. Yeah. They they saw the first ghost and they were just like, oh, I guess this is reality. <laughs> I think that, yeah. <laughs> this is just how it's going to be moving forward. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, so... But yeah, I mean, by the end, I mean, basically it ends with everything turning out great for her and all of her bridges being mended with no effort at all. Yeah, plus she falls in love. So. Yeah. It, it, she's an editor and she falls in love with like a writer who's like working with it which seems <laughs> unethical I don't know <laughs> at the very least he's gonna have to like uh, again he's gonna have to like change publishers or something yeah I don't know how that's gonna work out for her so because I mean immediately she says like like she can't because this isn't because you know she doesn't want to gavel that sort of you know quandary with someone that she's supposed to be working with and then eventually the movie is like who cares i mean the big the big thing with this is that Susie is supposed to be giving her like making her remember how happy and positive she was as a child and giving her that christmas spirit back but i have to wonder like how much of an impact Susie really had on her i mean the whole like bringing on this tom weller guy as a writer or, or like uh, bringing him into the uh, publishing his book, I'm not sure. Like that that guy would have showed up anyway, right? Whether yeah. Su- whether Susie was there or not, uh, maybe I, it's just about whether or not she felt motivated enough to like work with him. Yeah, maybe maybe that was part of it. Where Susie was sort of influencing her. It never seemed like she was making that big of an impact on her decisions. It seemed like she was sort of going to make those decisions anyway, but I don't know. She was really reluctant at first. Of course, she thought she was going crazy. And this is a, this is a movie that takes place in New York also. And uh, there's like, when she first is walking down the street with Susie and talking to her, people are like giving her the stink eye and stuff, which is again, something that would never happen in New York. No, (laughs) no, we we mind our own business in new york okay 
if I stopped and looked at every single person walking down the street talking to themselves, I, I would have wasted half my day. Yeah, I'm not. I don't. I don't live in New York, but just on a personal level, I decided a long time ago that I should just not pay attention to people like talking themselves or whatever because it's just not. It's not worth my time to worry. So I guess Susie helps her, you know, become a better person. And over the course of like, I don't know, three days, she again makes a complete 180 and she's a completely different person and everybody loves her again. And she falls in love and Tom loves her after like two days. So she goes to this, like she goes to Connecticut. I think it's Connecticut, right? It's Connecticut. Yeah. She it's goes, a great. And uh, after the ice storm last month, this is another entry. Connecticut discussion series. Yeah. So she, Films she goes, involving Connecticut. She goes to this little town in Connecticut where he lives and uh, goes through their their Christmas traditions and falls in love with him and that's it. Yeah. Although I do I do love that uh, when I, I guess it was it was after Susie left and like she starts crying. Susan starts crying and she goes, Merry Christmas, my Suze. I love you so much. And she's like bawling her eyes out. It's like, but it's you. You're like, you're saying you love yourself so much. I mean, maybe that's part of the whole healing process. It's a lot of self-actualization. We mentioned about the, like her alienating herself from her family and friends and all of that. But it gets to the point where, so she, she goes over to her brother's house for Thanksgiving. And during that meal, she tells her, her, niece that Santa isn't real and, and it's very insistent about doing it yeah she's like, like her brother gives her like five chances to like get off that train but she's taking it all the way to the station yeah. so she completely ruins her niece's life and then <laughs> and then and then her brother's like look you're a bad person. I don't like you and I want you out of my life. And he kicks her out and says that he never wants to speak to her again. Again, a thing that's resolved relatively abruptly by the end. Oh yeah. Yeah. It took like one phone call if I remember correctly. And it was, yes. everything's back, back on yeah, track. By the end of the scene, they're all just together again. And I guess they've, I don't know, waved a wand and made the, uh, and, and, and made the, the, the poor child forget that her, uh, just came in there and shattered her whole conception of uh, holiday happiness. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Everything about this is uh, it's 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 all very bad. Hayden Penitary. This is I don't know if it's her first role, but it's certainly no, it's not her first role, but it's an early role for her, and she's pretty bad in it. I mean, it's such a confusing part for a child actor, I would presume, because there's no, there's nothing to like connect with because there's just so much changing in every scene. Like that's just a weirdly written role. Yeah, she's an annoying little psycho in this, and I didn't. Every child in most of these movies are very irritating. Like this is definitely written by someone who does not understand how how to write any human, but especially not children. Yeah, she's she's really abrasive. Like, this is not the fault of anyone. <laughs> this is not the fault of the many child performers in all of these movies. But wow, this is like the this is like a, a 
whole plethora of really horribly written child characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, like because she signs Tom up with her publishing company that she works for, the she's like once again the all star at work, and she's suddenly nice to everyone at work, including her assistant. I guess it's her assistant that. Um, she ends up giving credit to because she was the one who found Tom in the first place. And, uh, that's it. It's, it's pretty boring overall. It's laughably bad, I would say. But it's not, it's not just bizarre and enjoyably bizarre enough to be something on the second day of Christmas, which again is weird because on the second day of Christmas is on some level, basically the the only movie that does not attempt to invoke a fantasy world in any way. And yet the movies that actually are fantasies are so much more boring than that one. Yeah. I would say in order of how ridiculous these movies were for me, second day of Christmas, mom for Christmas, if you believe then borrowed hearts. Yeah, that's a pretty good. I would also attribute that ranking to memorability Mm -hmm. i will never forget at least for a while the complete just this is set in a reality where no human laws or customs that i recognize exist ness of a second day for christmas on the second day of christmas that's that's going to stay there and haunt me for a while yeah i mean all of these are just so they're they're so bad, but it's also interesting to watch these movies in succession because they all have so many similarities. Like it's crazy. And when we were going through all of the ones, like all of the TV Christmas TV movies that were released throughout the nineties, there's so many of them. And I'd be willing to bet that almost all of them have the same themes. <laughs> And the same sort of plot beats. Yeah. The great thing when we discuss TV movies on the show is that they're often just so much more. They can be either far more dull than the theatrical film or just entirely more unhinged. So you really never know what you're going to get. Any any closing thoughts about the four movies that we discussed this month? Probably, but I don't know. But they're just all... They're just all uh, wordless reactions that I had while I was watching them and that I haven't been, been able to put into to verbalize yet. I would say if you're looking for, for an, something different, something that you haven't seen a bunch of times this, this holiday season, maybe give a couple of these a look if you're looking for, for a laugh. If you're, if you're getting together for some friends, you know, you're having your ugly sweater party or whatever, just put one of these on in the background you will you'll have a blast with pretty much all of them except borrowed hearts borrowed hearts just planned and it's bad and it's it it's still fun to watch because of just how bad it is but but it doesn't approach like on the second day of christmas or even a mom for christmas in terms of just moments that are just completely baffling yeah yeah all of these are available for free to watch by the way so they're on so we are, I already mentioned that A Mom for Christmas is on YouTube. Uh, Borrowed Hearts is also on YouTube. And then 
the second day of Christmas is also on YouTube. So three of the four on YouTube, if you believe is on Tubi. So Tubi is really an important part of the show at this point. Yeah. Um, just on a whim after watching one of these, I, I just sort of scrolled through the other offerings that Tubi has. Oh, I do that every time we have something to watch here on Tubi. It, yeah, I think Tubi is going to be a very integral part of this podcast because it has so many of these types of movies. It, it, it's going to come down to Tubi and Crackle. Tubi and Crackle, yep. And that's why this podcast crackles. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right, uh, I think that's going to do it for this month. I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday. Thank you so much for joining us. You can send your questions and topic suggestions to 90s at filmpulse.net. And you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 90s pod for daily 90s fun. Until next month. Next or decade. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's intense. Last show of the decade. That... Forget last show of the year, last show of the decade. I just now realized that. That is crazy. It's almost the 20s. But for us, it's always the 90s. Yeah. For Ken Bakley, my name's Adam Patterson. This has been Saved by the 90s. Bye, everyone. Bye.